You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we are almost done with a sermon series through the book of Hosea. If you're newer to the church, then um, you've missed out on 11 chapters of the book. Um, so uh, I'm going to quickly catch you up. Uh, the people of God, Israel, have been making a mess of things for a really long time, and the judgments of the Lord have fallen upon them, and he has spoken a testimony of hope over them that we make sense of in Christ Jesus, okay? You're caught up. Now, we are in <laughs> chapter 12 this morning, and it's kind of, it's kind of um, a, a continuation of last week. Last week in chapter 11, I tried to hold out for you guys a lot of the paternal or, or fatherly attributes of the Lord and the way that he talks about walking with his people Israel, his covenant people, from the days when they were just little ones, from their youth, when they were just a child, how he called them out of slavery as a son, how he picked them up by the arms, how he, how he taught them to walk, how he knelt down and fed them, how he healed them, even when they didn't know that it was he who was healing them. This chapter 11 was God talking about how he'd been with his covenant people faithful to them since they were just little little toddlers in the faith, just n- not knowing their right hand from their left. And now we're kind of back on theme because it had been, I think, several several weeks that we just seen like the Lord's uh, righteous justice and, and his anger, even his uh, discipline in several chapters here. We're kind of back on theme here in chapter 12 where the Lord, after declaring these things, reminds Ephraim, which is shorthand for the northern kingdom of Israel, says to them in chapter 12, verse 1, that they feed on the wind, that they pursue the east wind all day long, that they multiply falsehood and violence and make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. I won't hit on all of it, but I want to hold out to you that the Lord has put back on his lips through the prophet Hosea a, a charge against the northern kingdom about their multiplying of falsehood, about their deceit and their lying. And it, what I, but that's not where we're going to hang out this morning. What we're going to try to pay attention to this morning is how he immediately, after calling out this indictment against Israel and Judah, turns his mind and his attention and his words toward Jacob. I want to read this to you quickly, just two through six. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Verse 3, in the womb he took his brother by the heel. In his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed, verse 4. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Verse 5, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord Yahweh is his memorial name. And so you, verse 6, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. We're going to hang out in that section of chapter 12 for a minute this morning. And my objective as we look at these verses and then what kind of proceeds from them is that we would spend a minute, like I prayed for, marveling at the eternality of God, the God whose sight and memory spans the ages from beginning to to end, the God who authored it all, the Alpha and the Omega. We're going to marvel at his eternality, at the span of his sight, okay? And then we're going to remember the eternal covenant that God made with his people. We're going to spend some time after marveling at his own eternal nature, remembering, well, if he's eternal, then when he says that he's made an eternal covenant, that's a God who can keep that kind of covenant. 
and we're going to hold that up against some of those fatherly attributes that we saw last week, that we've got a God who has the might to actually carry out what he says. And then what we're going to do is we're going to try to shift our attention onto ourselves, and we're going to work together to try to abandon some of the unbiblical individualism that we bring to our thinking about the way that God works with his people. And then we're going to acknowledge our unity in the death of the flesh and glory in Jesus in our unity with him in eternal life. Now, that's kind of a roadmap. And if you want to break it down to something easier, if you're a note taker, it kind of goes like this. Our God is eternal. His covenant is eternal. And we've been saved into eternal life. Our God is eternal. His covenant is eternal. And we have been saved into eternal life. So we're going to seek to rejoice together in that this morning. Now, my mind goes on to these topics and these attributes of God on account of the fact that he's talking to the nation of Israel in the, around the 8th century B.C. about Jacob as if Jacob is standing right there. The Lord is, is, is speaking the name of Jacob and the life and deeds of Jacob over present-day Israel a thousand years after Jacob has died. And the way that God speaks in the present tense about past tense events in the life of Jacob over present day Israel shows us some things about the scope of his sight and about the scope of his covenant and about the way that he thinks and talks about the narrative of the promises of the people that he has saved. Now, I'm going to point this out in several ways, but we're going to start with, with what God has to say about Jacob. So his name comes in in verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And he starts with pointing out the very beginning. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Now, last week when I talked about uh, this, this from chapter 11, verse 1, where God says it was when Israel was a child that he loved him. I'm going to get there, but I want you to remember that Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob. At, Beth, at Bethel. And so I, what I want you to see is that when he's talking about Israel as a child, and now again he brings up in chapter 12 about Jacob in the womb, Jacob who will later be Israel in the womb, clinging to, clinging to his brother's heel, that there is a connection in the mind of God as he is tracing their storyline forward. And it roots around the fathers, the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember that when God covenanted with Jacob, we're going to get into this a little bit. You guys are going to want to flip back on your own time, maybe during the week this week, and read Genesis chapter 25 through maybe 35 would be good for you to read, 10 chapters of Genesis to kind of re reacquaint yourself with the story of Jacob. But it kind of goes like this. The Lord meets Abraham and on account of his faith makes a covenant with him that is based on faith where he makes a whole bunch of promises to him. And Jacob is the offspring, generations later, after Abraham. And one of the things that God speaks over Jacob's mother is that she's pregnant with twins. And he says that the older brother is going to serve the younger brother. And Jacob is going to be the younger brother. And that's why we read that he was clinging to the heel of the older brother as they were being born. And so we start to see some things about Jacob from the womb. A thousand years ago, some things about Father Jacob in the womb. That they contended, they wrestled Esau and Jacob in the womb. And God had given a promise. He'd, he's already made a covenant. He said, I'm going to continue this promise that I made to Abraham through the life of the younger brother. The one that's born second is the one on whom the promises that I made to Abraham and Isaac are going to fall. 
And what is Jacob doing already in the womb? He's trying to be born first. He's clinging to his brother's heel as Esau is born first. And Jacob already is, saying, is trying to pull him back. Not you first, me first. And it's a portrait for us to see about the, the intrinsic born innate nature of Jacob representative of the intrinsic born innate nature of all of God's people, which is we come into this world already rebelling against the covenant of God. He'd made a promise, the one who's born second is the one who will have all these promises land on them. And Jacob's like, I want first, as an infant in the womb. And so he is born clinging to Esau's ankle, is what the Lord recalls here in verse 3. And then he fast forwards into the adulthood of Jacob's life. And and you'll again read those in that 10 chapter account in Genesis, but Jacob is going to trick his own father. He's going to con his brother out of his birthright. He's going to steal his brother's blessing outright. He's going to manipulate his boss and get rich at his expense. He's going to send his family ahead into potential danger uh, when he hears that his brother is pursuing him and he fears for his life while he hangs back in relative safely, safety. We're going to see in the story of Jacob that he's not just in his birth, it's in like his entire life that he's marked by deceit and treachery and usurping and all of this, right? In fact, that's what the name Jacob means is one who seizes or usurps. And then we get to his adulthood, and we say in his manhood, chapter 12, verse 3, he strove with God, or he contended with God. He strove with the angel, and he prevailed and wept and sought his favor. And so now we've skipped over a whole testimony of unfaithfulness, of treachery, of deceit. Again, tie this back to the treachery and the multiplying falsehood that God is calling out in present-day Israel, and he sees Jacob in them. He sees the testimony of the first part of Jacob's life in present-day Israel as he holds them accountable for their multiplying falsehoods. But then he moves on to manhood. And he says, in Jacob's manhood, he contended with God. And I think most of us remember this story because it's an oddity in the Old Testament where we see that Jacob physically wrestles with an angel of the Lord and that they wrestle all night long and that Jacob prevails. But he walks away from that wrestling match with the Lord with a bad hip, and he has a limp for the rest of his life. And it's at this time that he wept and sought the favor of the Lord. And later, he is sleeping in a place that would come to be called Bethel, and he's laying on a rock, and he uses it as a pillow, and he, the Lord gives him a vision of all of these blessings that he had promised to Abraham that are going to come for Jacob in the future. And it's at that point that the covenant made with Abraham is made known to Jacob that, that it, the promises are now his. And that name is, is called Bethel. And, and we're going to see, we're going to talk about Bethaven here in a minute and how things have changed in the modern day for them. And then uh, at, at that point, that God starts to call Jacob Israel. And so the people Israel are, a, are, are named after the family name that is given to Jacob as the covenant father for all of these people. So when God says Israel, it's no longer clear to me as I read this, are you talking about Jacob or are you talking about your people? And the answer is yes. Are you talking about Jacob or are you talking about your people? God's answer is yes. 
And what I want for us to do this morning is to take a minute and to see how the Lord thinks about the people that he is ransoming unto himself and to do a little bit of work against some of the hyper-individualism that marks our day, where we think about God as dealing really almost exclusively with individuals, each person with their own unique story with God, and yes, sure. But the Lord is actually writing a narrative over a people that he is saving for himself, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, and your story arc is wrapped up in a greater story with many other individuals so that the Lord can speak of the church and mean you, and he can speak of you and mean the church. And I want you to see your inclusion in what the Lord has saved you into, not just what he has saved you out of. We're going to talk about that more here in a minute. But first, let's focus on Jacob. What we see is the Lord shifts the narrative. He starts with calling out and comparing um, contemporary Israel in their day to ancient Jacob, thousand years dead Jacob, as he talks about his early deceit, and then this moment where he wrestles and contends with the Lord in his manhood, and that he prevails and weeps and seeks his favor. And here I want to make a parallel into the gospel. And then, we'll, and then we'll land on the gospel at the end as well. Who else contended with the Lord and prevailed? I had to ask this question. Who can contend with the Lord? So I think it's one of the reasons why we hate this story in Genesis and why it's so disorienting is if he's God, how can you contend with God and prevail? That's not a thing like anywhere. Right? Isn't that your story? Isn't that the story of the church? This is all I could think about all week long, is that the church is the story of a people who contended with God and yet prevailed. Who contended with God and yet prevailed. What did you bring to the table in your, in, in your new life that you have with God other than your sin? What did you bring other than your rebellion? You contended with God and yet we would say of you today that you have what? Prevailed. How is it that you, as a contender with God, one who strives against God, can prevail? Well, it's because of the covenant-keeping, eternal nature of our God. See, the Lord made a promise to Abraham that he carries out on you. And I don't think that you like this very much, and this is why I wanted to talk about individualism this morning. I don't think that you love the idea that God can make a promise to you and carry it out in your children's life instead. Maybe you like it if he stays within your family. I don't think that you like that God can make a promise to you and bring it to bear on some random child in a thousand years that, that you don't even know anything about and never will. I don't know how much we in our hyper-individualistic thinking like that the Lord, a lot of the goodness of your testimony, all of the goodness of your testimony, frankly, is the Lord carrying out a promise he made to someone else. Do you know why you have been made the people of God? Because God told Abraham he would. That's why, because he told Abraham he would. He's making good on his promise to Abraham, and in that way, it doesn't really have very much to do with you at all. And if so, if it's not your promise, not to begin with, if his promise was to Abraham for him and all of his offspring, then on the one hand, I could say to you, it really doesn't have much to do with you at all. At the same time, I, I would say to you, and it has everything to do with you, because when he said, and his offspring, he was looking at you and his eternal mind. He saw you, the beginning from the end, and he made a covenant with you thousands of years before you were born. And if the Lord can make a promise to you 
through another person thousands of years before you are born. What is this but a testimony of a grace of a God who has, who has not interested at all in what you're going to do to earn this, in what you're going to do to keep this, in what you're going to do to bring this about? If the Lord is talking to Israel a thousand years later and has Jacob on his mind, and if it's going to be 700 years later before Christ is born, and if it's been 2,000 years since he has ascended, we're going to need to come to appreciate that we have a God who is working out an eternal covenant in his eternal mind, who has seen the beginning from the end. This is a good thing, but it means it's not really about you, not you alone. That was close. So after, Israel, so after Israel, or Jacob, contends with the Lord, and he's given this vision at Bethel, or place of blessing, while he is, what's he doing when he gets that covenant reminder in a dream? Well, he's sleeping, so he's doing nothing. And all he's done up to this point is fight with God. And then, here in his near future, his name is, is changed to Israel. Fast forward just a little bit. verse 12, just to continue this portion about Jacob, he then recounts this part of Jacob's story. He says, Jacob then fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. And to us, that might be like, that's a random thing to bring up. But what we're seeing is that when he read that he fled to Aram, is that he was a man with no place to call home, no place to lay his head down. And that when he had to serve for a wife, it means that he was a man with no dowry. So the one whom the covenant promises of God fell upon was somebody with no home to boast of and no dowry to even pay for a wife. He had to, he had to tend sheep in order to pay the, the, the dowry price to take a wife for himself. In other words, Jacob was nothing. He was of meager means. He was of a life of treachery and deceit. And yet the covenant promises fell upon him. And this is going to be good news when you bring it back into Hosea. When you now fast forward to a thousand years uh, forward into, into contemporary Israel and, and God is calling them Jacob and he's pointing out their treachery and their multiplying falsehood and their violence and their covenants that they're making with Assyria and the oil that's carried off to Egypt and all the other 12 chapters that we've already read together, and we see all this stuff about contemporary Israel being just like him, well, fast forward, and then you look at your life, marked by rampant idolatry, unfaithfulness to the Lord, and your flesh just chasing after the desires of the flesh, you know, the Ephesians 2, that you were once dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world, a slave to the desires of the flesh, but God being rich in mercy. See, isn't the story of how he brings his covenant to land on you, his covenant promises to land on you, the same as how he brought it to bear on Abraham, the same as how he brought it to bear on Jacob, and the same hope that that the Israelites in Hosea's day are to cling to if they are to have right standing with God? Of course it is. They bring nothing to the table. Can't even pay 
for a wedding, for a wife. Get down to verse 6, or verse, verse uh, 4, rather, and where he says that he met God. He wept, and he sought his favor. That after striving with him and breaking his hip, he weeps, he seeks the favor of the Lord, and he met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with, and it changes now from Jacob to what? To us. To us. There God spoke with us. And we've now moved off of Jacob and into the collective. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. This prophecy sounds like this. Look at Jacob and see yourself. You're just like your father. Look at Jacob and see yourself. You're just like your father. Bad news if it stops there. And then it goes, and then it essentially says, now look again at Jacob, and look at you, and look to your father. And that's where your hope is going to be found. Your despair is in that you're just like Jacob, and your hope is in that the God hasn't changed. People haven't changed. You have the same problem Jacob had. You have the same problem 8th century Israel had. We all have the same problem that all humanity has had since that we were exiled from the garden, that you are marked by an intrinsic sin, rebelling against the covenant promises of God. And the goodness in this is that God hasn't changed either. So even though humanity hasn't changed, neither has the Lord, and the Lord still brings his covenant to bear upon wicked people by his grace alone. And that's how we are changed it's how we turn. It's how we hold fast to love and justice and return by the help of our God. It's by waiting on him continually. It is a work of the Lord. Now in verse 7, he highlights some of the specific injustices of Israel's day. Obviously, we'll, those, because nothing changes and there's nothing new under the sun, we'll see these in our culture as well. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, verse 7. He loves to oppress. Ephraim said, ah, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Of course, the scriptures testify that he who says he is without sin is a liar. I am the Lord your God. The Lord speaks back to that from the land of Egypt, from way back there. I'm that God. And I will again make you dwell in tents, he says to Israel, as in the days of the appointed feast. He said, I'm going to take you back out into the wilderness because it's in the wilderness after I've stripped everything from you that you will call on me. He's been talking about this. It was I who spoke to the prophets, verse 10. It was I who multiplied the visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there's iniquity in Gilead, they'll surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he was guarded. So when we read that it was 
that it was the Lord all this while, from verse 9 onward, that it was the Lord who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that it was the Lord who spoke through the prophets, that it was the Lord who gave the visions of the covenant, that it was the Lord who gave the parables to the prophets, and that it, and that it was the Lord, skipping forward to verse 13, who through the prophets, it was the Lord who brought Israel up from Egypt, and that it was by a prophet that Israel was guarded. He's saying, essentially, listen to Hosea. It's when the, when the prophet speaks, it is the Lord speaking. So listen to Hosea. Well, what does Hosea say? He says, by the help of your God, return. And what does the greater prophet, the true prophet that we've been preaching about for weeks say? What does Jesus say? Return to the Lord by the help of your God. Who is your God? The one Lord, Jesus Christ. It is in him alone that we can be reconciled. Nothing has changed. You see, even in the restoration of the New Testament church among the Gentiles, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of the original covenant made with Abraham. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter wrote, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His, his eternal mind has seen the spans of his covenant from beginning to end, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way through to the Gentiles of today. And it was one covenant, and it is his patience, his enduring patience against sin, and his, it is eternal loving kindness that causes him to stay his hand and to patiently draw in the full number that he has willed to bring in wishing that not any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Genesis 17, this is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And you're like, Adam, I'm not a Jew. And I say, Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And this and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that is you, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How can we take this stuff written to Hosea and in any way make sense of where we fit into the story? Well, it's this. All of the covenant applications that God has for his ethnic people, Israel, in Hosea's day is applied to us by the exact same hand, by the exact same covenant, by the exact same God. You are children of the covenant on account of your faith. And your faith was a free gift of grace that none may boast. It means that all that he's spoken through the prophets was for us. It was all building up to this crescendo that he was going to save the nations unto himself. Do you understand this? Do you get that you are wrapped up in a story that's bigger than you? Do you get that our eternal God looked out and he saw the nations, that he saw the Gentiles, that he saw you, that he saw you? 
Do you get that he looked out across time and he saw you? And he was applying his covenant promises to you that he's brought them to bear because he said he would? That when he said to Abraham, you and all your offspring, that he meant Ethan? You belong to Christ today on account of the fact that our eternal God made an eternal promise to give eternal life to all the nations by faith alone. I was talking to my wife about this last night, and I said, help me. And she said, what I, say, what I think about is, what if they knew what we know now? I said, that's good. She was like, it was always like progressively revealing the promise that he was making and helping them to understand how this covenant was going to be fulfilled. But the way that they were experiencing it is that the favor of the Lord comes and it goes. It comes and it goes. And I don't know how to stay right with God and I don't know how to be brought into eternal life. I don't understand this. Not yet. Not really. In fact, Isaiah is in the same day walking around at the same time as Hosea and giving a lot of the prophecies about the Christ that's going to give clarity to how this is going to all play out. So they really probably didn't understand. But did it matter? Did it matter that they didn't get it? Or did it matter that when God spoke the covenant to Abraham, he meant them? Does it matter that you really get it? Or does it matter that when God spoke the covenant to Abraham, he met you? Look, if you, are, if, if you have been given faith, if, if you've been given the free gift of faith, if you've been united with Christ for eternal life, how do you keep it? How did you get it? By the eternal hand of our eternal God who keeps his eternal covenant promises. It's just not about you. And so Sarah said, so what's your point? And I said, relax. I think my point is relax. I think my point is breathe out. I think my, my point is trust him. I think my point is this is his 5,000-year plan, not yours. I, th I think my point is be. Celebrate, rejoice, glory in Jesus. Acknowledge your weakness. We are united. We are all, when I say like, let's, let's do some war against, uh, against our unbiblical individualism, what I'm saying is let's acknowledge that we are united in our death. That we all were dead in our sin and trespasses. We are united in the curse of the flesh. We were all bound for one outcome. And we are likewise all united in our eternal life because we've been united with the one true God by the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. It means breathe out because the same hope that brought Abraham into the presence of the Lord is the same hope that will bring you into the presence of the Lord. It is the work of God in keeping his covenant promises through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And what I know is that if he's an eternal God who eternally keeps his promises, we'll land here. And Jesus said when he promised that he would return for us, he said, if it were not so, why would I tell you that I go to prepare a place for you? In my Father's house are many rooms. And what I want you to hear this morning is that if, if you are not aware of this, if you're like, you don't know where you stand with the Lord, I want you to know that this is very simple. 
you bring nothing into this. You cannot trade righteousness for this. You cannot earn it. It's not about a special prayer that you are going to pray. But there are many rooms in the Father's house, and every last one of them was bought by the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus is applied by faith in him alone. What that means is that one day we will all stand before this eternal God, and this eternal God, as he's showing, as he's talking about a thousand-year-old memory, has an eternal memory. He will not forget your sins should you die in them. It's why, we, it's why there is e- eternal punishment for sin in hell. Your sin will ever be in his presence in a thousand years like it was today because he is the eternal God with an eternal mind and you've, and you've been eternally wicked before him. The only way for your, the eternal consequence of sin to be washed clean is for the eternal covenant of the Lord, the eternal covering of the blood of his son to be applied to your sin. And so when you stand before God on that day of judgment, we will all either read our resume, have our resume read, and we will answer for our sin, and we will not have sufficiently done enough to make ourselves right with a perfect, holy, just God, or we will have the perfect merits of Christ read over us because his covenant promises were applied to us by faith as we were washed in the blood of Christ. So you cling to him and to him alone, and you confess him as your hope of salvation, and you can do that today. And if you've done that, breathe. Breathe. Rest in him. He's not just the one who's going to stand in for you on that day, good news, but he stands in for you today. Your eternal God will walk you all the way home. He can handle your 80 years. He's got you. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go together as one body and we're going to collectively pray. This is one of my favorite images in all of Scripture. It comes from Revelation 5 where it says that as the scroll is open and the scroll contains the eternal plan of God for the redemption of the world and when it's open is when like all of the events unfold where he makes all things new and brings an end to all things and all of this. We're not preaching Revelation today, but in Revelation 5, when the scroll gets open, on that, on that day, it says that there are bowls in front of the throne of the Lord, that the bowls contain the prayers of the saints and that they're poured out as part of his redemptive plan for the world, which means that you want to get like a picture of like the collective nature of the people of God. All of your prayers are being stored up with all everybody else's prayers, all the prayers of the saints being stored up in bowls at the throne of God, and part of how he brings about his redemptive purposes in the world will be when he pours them out on the face of the earth, and everything receives its yes and amen that was prayed in the spirit. That's good news. So how about we like throw some prayers in the bowl is what I'm trying to say. How about with one voice we go before our Father and we acknowledge that we have been wrapped up in something so much bigger than us and so we participate together in his work of redemption in our lives and the lives of your brothers and sisters around you and for this city in Scott Air Force Base and we fill up that bowl. Can we do that and ask him to do something? Okay, let's do that now.